and open up to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, yes, yeah. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 5 through 20. Uh, If you're new with us, and we're glad that you're here, um, we would love to connect with you. There's info cards at the ends of the seats, and we'd, we'd just love to grab a cup of coffee with you. Um, or, or let you know more about us or learn more about you. It would be a lot of fun. Um, so fill that out if you want. But if you're new, we've been in a, a series of messages called Considering Christmas. It's a series of Advent messages that come from the Gospels. And we're in week three of this Advent series called Considering Christmas. Our study this morning is centered around the life of Zechariah in a message entitled Considering Silence. We've been considering different things each week. Considering the soon and coming king. We've been considering generosity. We've been considering silence. Next week we're going to consider proclamation as we dig into the story. But as you find this text in your Bible, let's consider the idea of Advent for a moment. The season of Advent has been around since the 6th century. It's a practice designed to increase our focus on the person of Jesus and the arrival of Jesus at Christmas time. Advent simply means the anticipated arrival of a person or an event. And so it gives us reason to ponder these things, to ask in our hearts. I'm working with a guy right now who hasn't yet come to Jesus, but he's saying, Don't get me wrong, it's not that I'm far away. I just want to make sure that I'm considering the claims. I think that would be a good practice for more believers to consider the things that we just do because we do them. Oh, it's Advent again. What's Advent? I don't know. Advent is the anticipated arrival of a person or an event. And Jesus, I would suggest, was both. He was a person, and boy, was he an event, because the event of his coming changed the world. But let's consider anticipation for a moment. What does that mean for us? And what I want you to do is just partner up with somebody next to you or two people around you. In about two minutes, I want you to answer this question amongst yourselves. What kind of things do you personally find yourself looking forward to the most in life? Anticipation. What kinds of things do you look forward to? Ready? Go. Talk to your neighbor. All right, I'm going to rudely cut you short and then send you back to these groups in just a minute. Don't worry, we'll have two more chances to do this. But let me get your attention again. When I look forward to things, I'm looking for opportunities to connect me to the things that matter the most to me in my life. 
So when I was starting to think through this, what, what do I look forward to? I look forward to relationships. We talked a little bit about this in weeks past. I love people a lot, like sometimes too much for my own good. I love people. Uh, but I love the opportunity to deepen relationships uh, with old friends, but then friends that aren't friends yet, people that I'm just meeting. I love meeting people, hearing their stories. That's something that I look forward to. Uh, I look forward to the expression of creativity. I love creativity, whether it's God-made, whether it's man-made. I I love, I enjoy listening to the music of nature. I mean, that might sound a little hippie, a little Bob Ross, but like I really enjoy going on a hike and getting out next to a, 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 a trickling waterfall that's coming down over the rocks and just in, in a rainforest or something and just listening to the music that God makes to get away in silent places and just listen, right? I like man-made music too. I love it when someone is courageous enough to bear their soul in front of strangers at the Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle. When they're just singing their hearts out, when our worship team is up here giving you their best, that's really vulnerable. I love that kind of expression. I love abiding rest. I look forward to opportunities to rest. I get nine days off after Christmas. I can't wait. It gives me strength and energy to keep going. It gives me hope to keep going. Um, I love what I do, but I'm just tired right now. My back hurts, right? So I'm looking forward to some days to just catch up and reflect on the goodness of what God is doing. Sometimes I move so fast that he does something amazing and I forget to give him proclamation for it. I just keep complaining about the things that aren't right. So to stop and to rest, for me, I look forward to that because it gives me a chance to remember where God showed up in unexpected places with unexpected people, which is the whole story of Christmas. Take time to pause and reflect. So I love relationships, creative expression, abiding rest. Now, some would say that we look forward. Pessimists might say, you might ask the question to somebody, say, I don't look forward to stuff because that's just a way to escape the present, bro. I don't, I don't do that. Right? Which is fair enough. Fair enough. Blaise Pascal, he was, if he was alive now, he'd be 350 years old. But he was a 17th century French philosopher. This is what he said about looking forward. And I think we should pay attention to it. He says, we are so unwise that we wander about in times that do not belong to us. And do not think of the only time that does. So vain that we dream of times that are not and blindly flee the only time that is. Thus, we never actually live, but hope to live. I think we will do well to pay attention to statements like this because anticipation, if consumed in mass quantities, can rob us of the joy that the present offers, right? But I think it's important in the midst of challenging seasons that the present can bring. Anyone got any challenging seasons that the present has brought? That sometimes it's okay for us to keep our eyes on the eternal hope of Jesus and our future. We don't live in the future. We don't live in the past. We learn from the past. We look to the future to have hope for the present. Interesting, this art. It is an art and a grace negotiating the tension between the present and the future. Anticipation, advent, the coming arrival. Because he's come once, he's coming again. Second question. This will be fun. Why do you look forward to the Christmas season 
or why don't you? Take about two minutes and talk about that amongst yourselves. A couple things that you really look forward to and a couple things that you really don't look forward to. Ready? Go. All right, let me get your attention one more time. One more time. Then I'll let you talk one more time. Is that the deal? All right. Why we look forward to Christmas? These are questions that I pondered throughout the week. I enjoy, again, time to rest. I enjoy expressions of joy and light and wonder and imagination that seem to come. Oh, wrong door. That's a construction door right now. Thanks, Lisa. It's, a, it's kind of a maze around here, isn't it? God bless you, Lisa. Have a great day. Looking forward to light and joy and wonder, imagination, generosity, and relationship. Those are things I look forward to, things I don't look forward to. Unmet expectations. Anyone got any of those? Disappointment, scarcity of resource, calendars that are oversaturated. It's really difficult. But then sometimes it feels like calendars are oversaturated, but we have too much time to sit around and do nothing. And that also feels like Christmas kind of comes with that, too. There's all this hype and then stop, and what do we do in the midst of all of that? There's strained relationships. There's all of these things. So even in hard times, however, I will suggest that it's still worth looking forward to Jesus. Why? Because he is the culmination of everything from that first list imagination, life, joy, hope, generosity, relationship. He is the culmination of all of those things. And at the very same time, he is the saving grace for everything that exists on our second list. The culmination of everything that is good and the saving grace of everything that isn't so good in Christmas is this exercise, the coming of Christ him in the flesh, love in the flesh, that we get to exercise these things. As disciples of Jesus, now as believers in Jesus, we can just sit back and open some presents and drink some eggnog and, you know, call it good. As disciples in Jesus, we have to think about these two things and figure out how the Lord is going to use us to make a difference in other people. And it starts with us. It starts with our own brokenness. 
It's been such a good exercise for me to go through, especially in difficult weeks. The Lord said, you're still going to offer me praise laying on your back? Still going to do that? Still going to engage in those relationships in your life that aren't going so well? You're still going to find joy in the midst of being too busy? You're still going to sit down and rest even though you don't have time? We work it out, and then we listen well to other people who have the same gripes that we do, and then we ask good questions, and we pray while we're asking them. And the presence of God who showed up in a manger shows up in that situation through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what disciples do. So these questions that I'm asking, these are things that we want to consider and grapple with and go home and think about and then practice with people we know. Amen? Amen. So as a family here at South Everett, we've been giving additional consideration to the Christmas narrative, to its people, to its places. We've been digging under the surface of some of the commonly accepted stories over the last couple of weeks. We're going to do it again. We're asking the Holy Spirit to lead us towards fresh revelation. We considered Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, understanding that God uses broken people in broken places to bring about his ultimate loving act through the birth of his son. He used broken people in broken places just like us. We considered last week the generous heart of God in our response to generosity from both perspectives of fear and faith. We talked about Herod and we talked about the Magi. When we approach generosity with fear, stuff gets broken down. But when we approach generosity with faith, everyone gets blessed. We talked about that last week. And this week, we're going to consider another person's story. We're going to consider a priest named Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And this morning, we're going to consider the role of silence in two places. The Christmas narrative and then in our lives as growing disciples. Silence helps us sort out what healthy anticipation looks like. When to be present. When to look to the future. When to learn from the past. That's hard to do when there's a lot of noise going on. Silence. Stillness and silence help us to make sense of the kingdom that's already and the kingdom that's coming. So let's take a minute and consider silence. Luke 1, verses 5 through 7. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive 
and they were both very old. My apologies, I have the scripture reference wrong up there. That is Luke, not Matthew 1 through 7. King Herod, Zechariah, the division of Abijah, righteousness, observing the Lord's commandments, childlessness, and old age. Again, we have King Herod, just like we did last week. Matthew's gospel references him, and Luke's gospel references him today. King Herod was a puppet king, appointed by the Romans. He was despised by the Jews, and he was threatened by Jesus. Those are the things that are important to know about Herod. Luke was queuing up the narrative in Luke 1, verses 5 through 7. Here is a priest married to a woman named Elizabeth, who is from the honorable line of Aaron, the priesthood of Aaron. Here they both are. Imagine the story. Scratch underneath the service. Two people faithfully ministering. Have you ever faithfully ministered, done what was right in a very dry and discouraging season? Have you ever just kept at it? Especially under the impression of a brutal dictator or a brutal boss or a brutal in-law, and just kept faithfully going about what you were called to do. All of this was going on, and if it wasn't reason enough to throw in the towel on faithfulness towards God for Zechariah, Matthew tells us that he and Elizabeth were very old and very childless. So it just keeps getting worse. Put yourself in just the humdrumest situation that you possibly can. This week while my back was hurting and I was driving too much and it was getting dark way too early, you know what I'm talking about? And you're sitting at a stoplight and you kind of, your eyes just kind of like glaze a thousand yard stare through the dripping on the windshield and you're just kind of, you know that place? Come on, somebody, tell me they know that place. Oh, Zachariah, if he had a car and it rained in the Middle East. Like, that would be the thing. Beyond that, the voice of the, voice of the community, right? Very old, very childless. Hmm. No kids, huh? Hmm. It's too bad. Because in the Old Testament, kids were a sign of blessing. And not kids was a sign of displeasure on the part of God towards you. So that all this going on, and then they had the community, like, saying stuff. One of the most sacred spaces in the life of a disciple is faithfulness in the midst of intense hardship. Hear it. Faithfulness in the midst of intense hardship. Our leadership team right now is kind of going through the ringer. Like, people are falling down and, like, hurting themselves and having surgeries and getting shingles on the side of their head and having discourse in their family. It's just hard right now. And we've been texting each other this week. Praise God that he meets us in the midst of the most intense situations. Brian Holmes, who's been flat on his back for probably close to 40 days, was like, isn't God good? Isn't he doing something? He must be doing something because we're facing a lot of opposition. Brother's been laying on his back for 40 days. You know when he texted me last night? He said, I forgot how much I liked listening to the sound of the rain. Disciples of Jesus practice faithfulness in the midst of hardship, intense disappointment, and intense frustration. Right? We got these characters. The division of Abijah is a priestly division. Abijah means my father is Yahweh. And it was one of 24 divisions of priests who ministered in the temple. 
right? The temple built by this tyrant Herod, really good at building things, really good at tearing people down. We talked about that last week. Nonetheless, he'd restored the temple, right? It was a place where the Jews went to worship God in advance of the one true living temple, Jesus, coming. So they went, and there was 24 of these divisions, And each division was broken down in somewhere between four and nine houses. And each house had about 150 priests in the house. Do the math on that. It's about 20,000 priests for the Jewish people. One of these divisions would go in to minister in the temple for one week every six months. So they'd be up twice a year. But not everybody would get to do all the jobs. In fact, the lots were drawn by each division to see who would get one role. And one person got one role was to go into the holy place from outside the courtyard into the holy place and offer sacrifices to God. Luke 1, 8 through 10. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty. Again, this is the guy with no kids. Very old. Very faithful. Very talked about behind his back. Once when Zechariah's division of Abijah was on duty, and when he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. That's Luke 1 through 10. Where did this tradition come from? Good, thank you for asking. It comes from the book of Exodus, where Moses wrote out all the commands for worship. All those books we like to skip over in the Old Testament actually apply to the New Testament. Exodus chapter 30, verse 7 reads, and this is why Zechariah was doing what he was doing, because his wife actually was from the line of Aaron. In Exodus 37 says, Aaron must burn fragrant incense at the altar every morning when he tends to the lamps. He must burn incense again when the lights of the lamps are at twilight. So incense will burn regularly before the Lord for generations to come. I want you to see this picture. That's what it looked like. Herod was good at building stuff. If you ever been to the ancient world, the thing that blows my mind the most is they did this without any electricity or power tools. Massive structures. I don't know how they did it. But that's what they came up with. This is, this is the place that Aaron, or sorry, Zechariah, chosen by, by a drawing out of 20,000 priests, would have gotten to go into the holy place. Two other priests would stir the coals on the outside, on the altar, and fill Zechariah's censer. He'd go into this place. Let's see the next picture up here. Here's a, a kind of an above picture. Everything I just showed you is that inner room on the right side of that little squiggly line, which is the curtain. We have the courtyard, then we have the holy place, and then we have the most holy place, which is where the Ark of the Covenant sits. So Zechariah is going into, like, phase two. And that's a scary place to be. You enter the holy place, you get in there, you trim the lamps on the lampstand, which would have been on the left. So he goes in and he trims the lamp, as Aaron would have done, thousands of years earlier. He pours hot coals on the altar of incense, which is on the other side, right? He pours powdered incense on the coals, and then he prostrates himself on the ground, and then he just backs out of the room until he's out because God is that holy. That's his job. 
Luke 1, verses 11 through 17. Right at that point, when he's down on the ground, he's backing out of the room. Then, 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 an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, right? So it's over on that side, the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled, duh, and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. This hopeless old man's prayer has been heard. I added that part. Continuing in verse 13, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. Verse 14, he will be a joy and delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. Can you imagine what he's hearing? His ears are tingling for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other ferment to drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. That's different. He will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents. Somebody pray this over your family right now. To turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord Jesus. Thank you. Lord, we pray for reconciliation in our families. With our parents, with our children. God, we pray forgiveness and grace and compassion and understanding and mercy, Lord, because this is what you prophesied and then fulfilled through your son and you're doing it. Keep doing it. Fill us with power, Lord, we all know exactly who we're thinking about, to be more gracious than we ought to be, to forgive one more time than we think that we should. Amen. What a scene. Let's consider silence for a moment. Here is the priest who is old and childish and under oppression, faithfully serving, doing the right things, and likely whispered about behind his back. What's he hiding? What's Zachariah hiding? He doesn't have any kids. What's he hiding? He ain't telling us the truth. He's got a double life. He must be gambling, girl on the side, rooting for the Niners. I don't know what it is. Something's going on in his life. That's not right. Why does God disapprove of him? Can imagine? Can you, you know when you're in that space where you know people are talking about you? You know it. Sometimes we imagine it, but sometimes we know it, and we're just feeling it. I imagine it must have been pretty quiet and pretty lonely for a guy with no kids in the house. No grandkids in the house. People talking about him. Must have been pretty quiet. Not to mention that it had been 400 years, 400 years since the Hebrew people had heard from God. Did you know that? 400 years. No direct intervention, no prophetic voices. This little split right here between page uh, 1906 and 1907 in my Bible represents 400 years. It's the last words of the prophet Malachi before the first words of the disciple Matthew. 400 years goes by. Silence. Backing out prostrate from the temple, from the holy place. And then Gabriel. And now Gabriel, God's direct representative. 
That's how important this angel was. He showed up one other place that we know about in the book of Daniel. The angel of the Lord Gabriel appeared. Angels of the Lord have appeared in different places throughout history. But he appears again now. Gabriel, God's direct representative, appears and says a few things of ridiculous importance. Number one, don't be afraid. Like angels just kind of had to say that when they saw people. <laughs> they just did. Don't, don't freak out like this is a Jesus thing. Like don't, just all right. It's all right. I'm here. It's good. Right? Don't be afraid. Zechariah. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. He uses his name. The name Zechariah in the Hebrew means Yahweh has remembered again. Whew. 400 years. Zechariah, Yahweh has remembered again. Can you imagine the space? What are the people outside in the courtyard saying now? He's been in there for a minute. <laughs> Your prayers have been heard. Some ridiculous things coming out of the mouth of an angel. And then he says, congratulations, old man. <laughs> You're going to be a daddy. That's what he says. We don't know, but some in here do know the pain of trying to have children not, not being able to. Some people know that pain. I can only stand back with my mouth shut and learn that kind of pain from somebody. But if that was you for a long time and then you had a child, you know how Zachariah felt in that moment. Others have dreams and pains around dreams that haven't come true yet, but the Lord has said we will be a people who will breathe on the dreams of a community. That comes from the gospel. We will breathe hope and life. And we know that Zechariah, obviously the scripture said that his wife was barren. Side note, uh, you know who else had barren wives? This is really interesting from the NIV study commentary remarks. It said that Abraham's wife, Sarah, right? Barren. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, barren. Jacob's wife, Rachel. Remember these names in order? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They show up over and over. Because it's the grandpappy, the poppy, and the son, or the son, the, the dad, and the grandfather. It's the, the patriarch of the nation of Israel. It's where the people started. And all of them had barren wives until God intervened. It's what he did when he started, and guess what he's doing again? He's reigniting, re-enlighting, and uh, starting a fire in God's people through the birth of John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. So a question to stop and pause and reflect and ask the Holy Spirit to come. Where are we feeling barren right now? Where in our life right now are we being ridiculously faithful and maybe even generous and obedient and we're just not seeing the fruit? Where's that for us right now? In that moment, the thing you're like, God, I don't know what else to do. But wait in silence. And continue to be faithful and obedient. Whatever that thing is, write it down, put it in your phone, whatever, and start applying Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 20 to it because Zechariah was living in it. Do we believe that God remembers? Do we believe it? Zechariah, Yahweh, has remembered again. Do we believe that God remembers our prayers? Back to verse 17. This is so cool. 
about John the Baptist. And he will go on before the Lord and the Spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Really interesting. These words from the angel Gabriel about this promised son, John the Baptist, were words that were first used 400 years earlier in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It's the last verse in the Old Testament, the one that I just read. That's the last verse in the Old Testament. And then silence for 400 years. That came through the voice of a prophet who was someone who sees, hears, and speaks from God's perspective. That was the voice of an Old Testament prophet. And then it was the last time the people heard from God for 400 years. It was silent until the angel of Gabriel shows up. And what does he say? He quotes the prophet. You don't think that this faithful priest didn't know the last thing that God said would be the first thing he'd say again? It'd be connected to him and his old bones and his ability to produce a baby through his barren wife? Wow! Ha! God showed up. He showed up. (laughs) Verse 18, Zechariah then asked the angel, Mm, how can you be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Verse 19. The angel said to them, I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. <laughs> and now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day that this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their point in time. Bummer for eight. You ever bring good news to someone and they just botch it? You ever done that? You're like, you're supposed to be excited. Never mind, bro. Just forget. You were supposed to be excited. You know those moments? <laughs> Poor angel, right? So consider this for a minute. The manifest presence of God is before Zechariah. It's like right in front of his face. God is speaking to a human for the first time in like a bajillion generations. <laughs> and he's speaking to Zechariah about his promised son, and Zechariah responds, you know, we're pretty old. Are you sure about this? Like, that's his response. That's his weak response. Abraham Lincoln is a man of courage, wisdom, and great articulation. He once said, it is better to stay silent and thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) Do you think the brother maybe should have stayed quiet in the presence of the angel? (laughs) Right? But he opened his mouth, you fool! (laughs) Can you imagine the angels in heaven, Gabriel's buddies, just kind of looking down. Now I'm just adding to the text. But just imagine for a moment, because it's fun. All the other angels in heaven looking down on those things. Like, Zachariah was lucky to be presenting the offering. The angels are thinking that Gabriel's lucky to get the good news. You ever heard that statement? Oh, bless his heart. You ever heard that? Do you know what someone's actually saying when they say, oh, bless his heart? You know what they're saying? What an idiot. (laughs) Think about it. What do you say? Oh, bless his heart. (laughs) Look what you mean. The other guy's an idiot. Right? So there's angels up there in heaven. Oh, bless his heart, Zachariah. Bless that guy's heart. What an idiot. Right? How often when we hear from God about what he plans to do in our broken nature, do we want to put ourselves at the center of the story to make it happen? God tells us he's going to do something. And they're like, but I can't. He said, I didn't ask you to. 
I just told you I was going to do, but I can't. I don't care what you can't do. I don't, I don't care. This is not about you. Chuck Swindoll had an interesting take on Gabriel's response in his commentary. The response of Zachariah's lack of faith. He said it went like this. Gabriel said to Zachariah, you're old, huh? Well, I see you old and I raise you. I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. That's what Chuck Swindoll had to say, but turned it into a poker match, right? Like, that's who I am. Speechless was the consequence. You will now shut your mouth. Thank you very much. Till this baby comes. You will shut your mouth. Silence. Back to the question. What does silence provide for you? What does silence provide for you? Look at this guy. Look at this moment. There's a little light so you can't see the breath. That's all he has left is breath. But what a picture. Before an angel, an old man who's going to be a daddy. That guy. What does silence provide? For me, silence provides an opportunity to yield my senses to the Lord. I'm going to show you one other picture. That's hard to see too. It's getting bright out there. Praise the Lord for the brightness. This is... This is where I meet with Jesus in the mornings. It's in my dining room. I, I sit in the cushy chair. And then I open, not all the time, but when I can remember, I open the other chair. Because it reminds me I'm not by myself. When I'm by myself, it's not weird. People, That's weird, bro. You set a seat for Jesus. But yeah, like, because it just helps my soul. Remember that I'm not by myself. So I set that place. I got my coffee, got my Bible, got my journal. I yield to the Lord. I yield my eyes to the Lord. What's that look like for me? It looks like comparison. Looking around, everybody else's Christmas Eve ads going up on Facebook for their little churches. Oh, and put that together. How many people you got at your church? How many? Oh, how, how influential are you? Like, I yield my eyes to stuff that pastors worry about. How big is that guy's car? Oh, he's got a bigger house? Oh, that's a nicer vacation than I got. Like, if I'm looking at that, we all do that, right? With whatever our profession, whatever our life is, we can't see Jesus. We cannot see Jesus when that's going on. So I yield my eyes so that I don't compare. I fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. I yield my ears. Who am I listening to? Who am I listening to? What voices, what voices am I hearing because of what my eyes have seen that tell me that I, I should be discontent and irritable? And lean into all the wrong things. My father-in-law often says when we're done praying, he, he says, well, let's just stop for a minute and let's just say, hey, God, what, now what do you have to say about this? And then we sit there until God speaks. We yield our ears. I yield my sense of touch to God, which simply means that I'm going to live my life with open hands as a steward, not an owner. You can have this, Lord. I won't touch it so hard that you can't have it back. I try to yield my sense of touch. I try to yield my sense of smell. Uh, like, does my attitude stink right now? <laughs> I got to the chiropractor yesterday, and I'm just telling him, I'm like, bro, I was, a, I was a jerk to my wife this morning. I'm going down on the table, right? And he goes, well, we can maybe give you an attitude adjustment, too, along with your vertebrae, right? <laughs> I'm like, I need that, bro. Thank you. Attitude adjustment. When does our attitude stink? I try to yield that stuff to God, and it doesn't go perfectly. I'm trying to hold on to my day yesterday. Yesterday, I was not yielding at all yesterday. I'm trying to hold on, trying to control situations. And I said, I'm just trying to make it go better. And Katrina says in the presence of our son, she goes, well, it's not going so well right now. <laughs> and I'm like, you're right. You're right. Okay. 
It's okay to argue in front of your kids sometimes. It's real. It's real. As long as you honor each other, right? I yield my sense of taste, yielding my appetite, consuming what is good for me. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every mouth, word that comes from the mouth of God. Out of the town of Bethlehem, the city of provision. As we close, what Zechariah had in the moment, what he had was the promise. Gabriel shows up, he's got a promise. A promise in the midst of very challenging circumstances. What wasn't there yet was the baby. Baby wasn't there yet. He only had a promise. We've got promises about things and the baby ain't shown up yet. What are the promises God has given you? How will silence and stillness and rest help us manage anticipation about looking forward maybe too far to not be in the present or getting stuck in the past? How does silence help us to manage anticipation so that we can be present in the moment with a promise anticipating a baby? We need the Holy Spirit to help us navigate those things. We have so many Old Testament promises. There's a tension about, like, a, a, a tug and pull kind of tension about these promises. We have so many Old Testament promises about Jesus. So many. And at the first Christmas, God delivered on all of those promises. He delivered on every single one. Jesus has made promises to us that are just promises right now. He will always be with us. He has gone before us to prepare a place for us. This is Matthew 28, John 14. He says that whoever believes in him shall receive eternal life. These are promises. We're waiting for the fulfillment in the second coming of Jesus. So what are you waiting for? How does silence help with that process? What does it look like for us to wait What do we like about it? What don't we like about it? But will we be still long enough to hear him make promises that he promises to deliver on? My prayer for each of us is that waiting will include some intentional times of silence. Because in silence, the result is great praise. Luke 1, this is not on the screen. Luke 1, 57 through 66. Fast forward through the promises that were made to Mary about Jesus. Fast forward through Jesus and, or sorry, Mary and Elizabeth getting together and singing songs of praise. It was time. The birth of John the Baptist. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. Christiane, why don't you come on up here? On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah, because that's just what they did. It was just what they did. But God was doing a different thing. Do we have courage to stand up when God is doing a different thing and say so? Verse 60. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, Elizabeth, no one among your relatives has that name. None of them. Then they made signs to his father, Zachariah, to find out what he would like to name the child. Lord, what should we name this child? I've been silent for like six months. I haven't been able to open my mouth. I think his name is supposed to be John. I actually, I, I do, but you kept me silent for six months. I will name him John, Lord. I've heard from you. This is all the thoughts that must be going through this, this mute man's head. 
And then he asked for a writing tablet. Uh, To everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened, his tongue was set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard the wondering about it asked, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand is with him. Let's stand together, church. What silence does in the end is it gives us time to consider the promises of God and his ability to fulfill them. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.